Hey everyone, it's always a highlight uh, for me to be with you and Joe and I obviously hoping to be back with you in person before too long. Um, and it's exciting to know that you're doing a series on world mission and I'm, I'm just thrilled that I can be part of that. Just conscious that, you know, we're living in a week of unrest and maybe even by the time that we see this together, that's calmed down a bit. But uh, I just want you to know from a, an overview perspective, the church has lived through very tough times in very difficult situations across the centuries. We've got someone to hold on to who doesn't let us down, the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, what I'm gonna attempt to do today is really look at the Spirit's power in mission through thick and thin and so it's going to be a whistle top a whistle top a whistle stop tour of the greatest move of the holy spirit in the 20th century in the last century obviously i can't be very thorough in half an hour that's why it's a whistle stop tour rather than a whistle top tour and i'm going to give you a brief history of the story of pentecostal charismatic uh, christianity and how it grew around the world. I don't have time to be kind of critical of its shortcomings or weaknesses, but praise God, we do have time to celebrate what God has done through these outpourings of the Spirit that we're going to be looking at together. Just uh, in terms of our terminology, the word Pentecostal, of course, is a Bible word. It refers, generally speaking, to Acts chapter 2, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, the day of Pentecost. And so the term Pentecostal has referred to that outpouring of the Spirit day and experience. And then the term charismatic is also a Bible word. It comes from the Greek word charismata, which usually is translated spiritual gift and is normally referred to in terms of the overtly miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. So today, of course, we're used to Pentecostal stroke charismatic style Christianity. A 2011 Pew Research paper on global Christianity revealed that more than one in four Christians are Pentecostal stroke charismatic. In 2006, Christianity Today magazine reported the following, with more than 580 million adherents, growing by 19 million per year, that's 54,000 a day, the Pentecostal charismatic movement has become in just 100 years the fastest growing and most globally diverse expression of worldwide Christianity. Peter Wagner said a few years ago, in all of human history, no other non-political, non-militaristic, voluntary human movement has grown as rapidly as the Pentecostal charismatic movement in the last 25 years. Professor Philip Jenkins, who's the author of an excellent book, The Next Christendom, writes the following, worldwide Christianity is actually moving towards supernaturalism and neo-orthodoxy and in many ways toward the ancient worldview expressed in the New Testament. 
a vision of Jesus as the embodiment of divine power who overcomes the evil forces that inflict calamity and sickness upon the human race. In the global south, that's us, huge and growing Christian populations now make up what has been called the third church. The growth in Africa has been relentless. In 1900, Africa had just 10 million Christians out of a continental population of 107 million, about 9%. Today, the Christian total stands at 360 million out of 784 million. That's 46%. And that percentage is likely to continue rising. Within the next 25 years, the population of the world's Christians is expected to grow to 2.6 billion, making Christianity by far the world's largest faith. By 2025, 50% of the Christian population will be in Africa and Latin America, and another 17% will be in Asia. Those proportions will grow steadily. In an article for Atlantic Monthly, Jenkins wrote, A full-scale reformation is taking place amongst Pentecostal Christianities. By 2040 or so, there could be as many as a billion, at which point Pentecostal Christians alone will far outnumber the world's Buddhists and will enjoy rough numerical parity with the world's Hindus. And in the next Christendom, he wrote, As I have worked on this book over the past few years, I've described its general theme to friends and colleagues, most of whom are well-educated and widely traveled. When I say that my theme is the future of Christianity, a common follow-up question is, in effect, so how long do you think it will last? It would not be easy to convince a congregation in Seoul or Nairobi that Christianity is dying when their main concern is building a worship facility big enough for the 10,000 or 20,000 members that they have gained over the past few years. And these converts are mostly teenagers and young adults, very few with white hair. Nor can these churches be easily told that in order to reach a mass audience, they must bring their message more into accord with Western secular orthodoxies. Well, if you'd woken up in Los Angeles on Wednesday, April the 18th in 1906 and read the leading story on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, you would never have believed that what you were reading about would one day eventually become mainstream Christianity. And here is that that front page. Here's the headlines. Weird Babel of Tongues. New sect of fanatics is breaking loose. Wild scene last night on Azusa Street. And my favorite headline in the history of newspaper headlines, Gurgle of Wordless Talk by a Sister. The article includes the following description. After an hour spent in exhortation, the brethren present are invited to join in a meeting of prayer, song, and testimony. Then it is that pandemonium breaks loose and the bounds of reason are passed by those who are filled with the Spirit, whatever that may be. 
Well, there were forerunners, of course, to this Azusa Street outpouring. We're going to look a little bit at them. The Welsh Revival, of course, two years earlier in 1904. Evan Roberts, a 26-year-old student preparing for ministry, was powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit. For three months, he woke up in the middle of the night encountering God, and he believed that God had promised him 100,000 souls in Wales. In November 1904, Roberts preached to a, a group of bored teenagers, six of whom went forward to give their lives to Christ. And then, one historian writes, the Pentecost began. Soul after soul came forward. The most extraordinary results followed. The whole community was shaken. Meetings lasted until four in the morning. The work went on until a local minister said the entire population had been transformed into a praying multitude. Across Wales, thousands came to Christ. Pastors said it was impossible to count the number of people that were being converted. Pubs were emptied. The horses in the mines couldn't follow instructions anymore because they were no longer being sworn at by the converted, the newly converted miners. Massive congregations were formed in small villages. Huge church buildings were constructed that could seat thousands of people. In many places, it was reported that only a few unconverted people were left. At least 100,000 people were added to the churches of Wales between 1904 and 1906. One pastor said, we have seen Satan's worst, worst many times but have never seen Christ's best until now. Well, the news of what was happening in Wales spread, of course. Word of the revival spread, as, as it always does, across the Christian world. And Joseph Smale, pastor of First Baptist Church in Los Angeles, went to Wales and he wrote of uh, one meeting. Fully, he says, 200 of them came out of their seats and wept in penitence before the Lord. And a large number of American pastors and leaders began to pray for revival in the USA. There was a preacher called Charles Parham, and he'd started a small Bible college in Kansas. And along with others from the Methodist holiness tradition, he taught that believers could expect a post-conversion experience, a kind of a second blessing that gave them victory over sin, and he called this second experience the baptism in the Spirit. The problem was that people didn't know if they'd received this baptism or not. How do you know if you've had this or not? They wanted assurance that they'd had this second blessing. And while Parham was traveling, he uh, set his students an assignment. Search the scriptures and see what is the evidence of someone having received the baptism of the Spirit. He wrote this, To my astonishment, they all had the same story, that while there were different things which occurred when the Pentecostal blessing fell, that the indisputable proof on each occasion was that they spoke with other tongues. Convinced by what, he, what she had studied, Agnes Osman, the first hero of our story, asked Parham to lay hands on her that she might receive the Holy Spirit. And he did. Parham says, 
that the Holy Spirit fell upon her and that she spoke Chinese and was unable to speak in English for three days. Parham then revised his view <clears throat> of this second blessing and now said it's actually a reception of power with the release of known earthly languages for the purpose of global mission, getting closer to Acts 2. It would be like he felt the tongues in Acts 2, real languages. So people, when they received the Holy Spirit, would speak in real known languages. Well, as a result of that breakthrough, zealous church planters did indeed go to many cult countries, uh, but were subsequently alarmed on arrival by the discovery that they were not, in fact, speaking the known language of, of that country at all, but speaking in an unknown tongue. But praise God, many of them stayed and planted churches anyway. It was, of course, an understandable mistake. He, he was focused only on Acts chapter 2 and seemed not to be examining the other New Testament references to tongues. Well, Parham moved to Texas. He opened a short-term Bible training course. And it was then, in January 1906, that William J. Seymour, one of the great heroes of, of this story and of 20th century Christianity, approached him and asked if he could attend. Now, Parham managed to he agreed to let him attend it, but he needed to dodge the segregation laws. And he did that by arranging for Seymour, who was an African-American pastor or trainee pastor, to sit in an, in an adjoining room to overhear the lectures through an open door. Embarrassing, though, of course, all of that is. Seymour then became convinced from Scripture of the need for a post-conversion experience of the Holy Spirit that would give power for mission for himself and others, along with the gift of tongues. Parham and Seymour went preaching together in the black sections of Houston, but Parham in the public context upheld the segregation laws and forbade intermingling at the front of the meetings during ministry times. So in February 1906, Seymour moved away. He moved to Los Angeles which is where the breakthrough happened, and into a more racially open climate to take up a pastor of a small holiness church, Methodist holiness church. And his first message, of course, was on Acts 2, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was his text. And although he hadn't spoken in tongues himself, he preached that it was the Bible evidence of receiving the Spirit. Well, the leaders struggled to receive such a kind of direct message, especially as Seymour himself didn't even speak with, with these so-called tongues. And after only a few services, he arrived at the building to find a large padlock keeping him and his friends out. Professor Harvey Cox of Harvard writes, Faced with a bolted door, Seymour did what thousands of Pentecostal preachers have done in similar circumstances ever since. He carried on. He began praying, sometimes up to seven hours a day. A group began meeting in a small house. And then on April the 9th, 1906, the breakthrough came. Edward Lee, a janitor, a member of Seymour's prayer group, asked for prayer for healing and he was healed. 
And then he asked for the baptism in the Spirit. He immediately began pouring out speech in tongues. Together, he and Seymour walked to the house where their new smaller meeting was to be held. And again, Seymour preached from the same text, Acts 2.4, but he never got to finish his message. Author Richard Foster, you may have read some of his books, Celebration of Discipline, or his book on prayer, wonderful author, in a book called Streams of Living Water, writes this. Lee lifted his hands, opened his mouth, and electrified everyone with a torrent of glossolalia, tongues. Immediately, the entire company was swept to its needs, as if by some unseen power, amid an outpouring of tongues and sudden joy. Jenny Evans Moore, who later married Seymour, went to the piano, although she didn't know how to play, and played flawlessly as she sang in six foreign languages she did not know, with interpretation for each, French, Spanish, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Hindustani. Over the next few days, the group increased in size, both black and white coming together and receiving the baptism of the Spirit. Healings happened. On April the 12th, Seymour himself finally received the gift of tongues. And on the same night, the front porch of the house collapsed and the group began looking for a more suitable meeting place. That's when they went to Azusa Street. It was barely more than an old barn, but at their first Sunday meeting, it was packed. And many people were filled with the Spirit and spoke in tongues. Soon people from all over America, and before long, all over the world, began to flock to Azusa Street. Nationalities, races, languages were all mixed together under an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Nothing like it in recent history had been seen before. The only similar context, and by the way, this is, a, uh, this is a feature of all true revivals, when people say, nothing like this has happened since the book of Acts, since Acts chapter 2. It's like one of those statements that always gets made. The only similar context seems to be Acts 2. Frank Bartleman, a journalist, wrote, the color line was washed away in the blood. Newspaper reporters began to visit and generated even more interest. Three meetings continued every day, every day, three meetings a day, for three years, morning, noon, and night. The meetings often overflowed into each other in one continuous worship, preaching, testifying, outpouring experience. Amazing. Bartleman wrote this. Those from poorer economic segments of the community felt welcomed. The freedom of the revival allowed blacks, whites, Mexicans, Asians, Jews, Catholics, men and women all to worship together. Women were allowed to testify and many black ministers laid hands on white seekers as the Holy Spirit was being poured out. Well, here are some testimonies from their first newsletters that this new kind of church or movement or whatever it was, they began to send out the Apostolic Faith newspaper, first edition. These are some quotes from, from those early new, uh, testimonies and reports that went out from Azusa Street. Many have laid aside their glasses and had their eyesight perfectly restored. The deaf have had their hearing restored. The Lord has given the gift of playing on instruments. That's, that's an interesting one. In a cottage meeting, meeting on Morton Avenue, George Hock, who has been blind for more than a year and a half, was saved and then received his sight. He can now read, and his relatives and friends who are unbelieving are filled with wonder and are telling everybody everywhere. On August the 11th, 
An Indian man from the central part of Mexico was in the meeting and heard a German sister speaking in his tongue, which the Lord had given her. He understood, and through that message, he was most happily converted, so that he could hardly contain his joy. All the English he knew was Jesus Christ and hallelujah. He testified in his language, which was translated by a man who had been among that tribe of Indians. Well, then the movement spread. Melrose, Kansas, the power of the Holy Spirit was greatly manifested in the meetings by the speaking in unknown tongues. This was much criticized by the town and vicinity, so the principal physician, who was familiar with several different languages, was prevailed upon to go to the meetings in order to denounce the whole thing as a fake. Miss Tuthill, in an unknown language known to, uh, to herself, but known to him as Italian, spoke his full name, which no one in the town knew save himself, telling him things that had happened in his life 20 years ago and on up to the present time until he cried for mercy and fell on his knees seeking God. He found full salvation the next day and is now a believer in the gospel and also in the power of the Holy Spirit. Seymour soon formed a a racially mixed leadership team for the church. Richard uh, Foster writes, Seymour understood clearly the implications of glossolalia for interracial reconciliation and community. This he saw in ways that Parham and many of the other white leaders never saw. As a son of slaves, he understood Pentecost as a new jubilee requiring the release of the broken and the bruised from their oppression. He consistently connected what was happening at Azusa Street with the Pentecostal outpouring in the second chapter of Acts, where the result of the tongues like as a fire was a reconciliation between nations and races and cultures. In those early years, white leaders came in large numbers, repenting of their racial attitudes, their racist attitudes, and working alongside Seymour. Never in history had any such leadership surged into the church of a black pastor. In the ministry of William Seymour, the color line was overcome and a challenge of reconciliation was set before the whole world. Well, this exploded, of course, as pastors and leaders are coming in and out and experiencing the Holy Spirit in this new way, it began to spread very, very quickly. Within weeks, the first overseas church planters were sent out to Scandinavia, India, and China, and after that in various, into various African nations. So many missionaries went out from Azusa that within two years, two years, the movement had spread to over 50 nations. It's very different when the Holy Spirit falls. American missionaries who were back in the U.S. on sabbaticals visited Azusa Street and were not only able to identify some of the languages spoken, and so some of them were real languages being spoken in tongues, but they also returned to the mission field with a new sense of the power of the Spirit working in their own lives. There was a growing conviction that worldwide evangelization could effectively be accomplished through gospel preaching accompanied by signs and wonders. It, it kind of heralded a return, a restoration to the book of Acts. John G. Lake left the USA for South Africa and what can only be described as a revival took place. More than 600 local churches were planted in just over a five-year period 
while he was here. That's amazing. South African church leader David Duplessis said, if they lacked the education to speak with authority of matters on doctrine, they certainly did not lack the power to cast out devils and heal the sick. If they could not argue with theologians, they were able to speak the language of the masses and understand their problems. Alan Anderson, in his um, introductory study of Pentecostalism, wrote, Cerebral and clerical Christianity had, in the minds of many people, already failed them. What was needed was a demonstration of power by people to whom ordinary people could easily relate. This was the democratization of Christianity. And henceforth, the mystery of the gospel would no longer be reserved for a select privileged few, but would be revealed to whoever was willing to receive it and to pass it on. Again, Professor Harvey Cox emphasizes the miraculous element. He writes uh, in his wonderful book, the official minutes of a, of a revival sponsored by the Church of God records that a woman who had never had a music lesson was so touched by the power that she sprinted to the organ and played beautiful music. In India, at a missionary orphanage for girls, pictures depicting the life of Christ appeared supernaturally on the walls. The figures in the pictures moved and were in color. Each would last from two to 10 minutes and then they gradually faded away to appear with a new scene. The chronicler who passes on this news appears to be aware that small children sometimes possess extremely creative imaginations, so he judiciously adds that these high-resolution pictorial transmissions appeared not only to the children, but to eight missionaries, Christians living nearby, and even heathen coming to see this wonderful sight. Wow. Very quickly... Many other Pentecostal centers were established, which in turn produced thousands of church plants and hundreds of church planting movements in a relatively short space of time. Cox again, not only, he says, did missionaries travel all over the globe, 38 left from Azusa Street within six months, but wherever they went, the people who heard them seemed to make the message their own and fan out again. Almost instantly, Pentecostal, Pentecostalism became Russian in Russia, Chilean in Chile, African in Africa. Within two years, the movement had planted itself in 50 countries. It was a religion made to travel, and it seemed to lose nothing in the translation. Well, if we kind of zoom up a little closer in our own time, if we look at Africa now, or at least up until kind of the turn of the century. Philip Jenkins writes this, it was precisely as Western colonialism ended that Christianity began a period of explosive growth that still continues unchecked. Sometime in the 1960s, another historic landmark occurred when Christians first outnumbered Muslims in Africa. That is, since the time of the Islamic conquests in the 7th and 8th century, up until now, there had been more Muslims than Christians. Now that changed from the 60s onwards. In Latin America, Harvey Cox describes a lunch that he'd had with Brazilian academics and scholars at which they discussed the astonishing uh, rise of charismatic style churches in Brazil. He writes this, there were sociologists 
theologians, a political scientist, a Brazilian Methodist pastor, a Catholic priest, an activist nun, and a cultural anthropologist. Over the meal, they all chatted amiably, but it soon became evident that the question which animated them most was exactly the one that was on my mind. Why are Pentecostals growing so fast in Brazil and in other Latin American countries? There were now more Pentecostal pastors in Brazil, the historian said, than Roman Catholic priests. And unlike the priests, there were almost, they were almost all native Brazilians. The growth was so swift, the sociologist said, that some sections of Brazilian cities already had Pentecostal majorities. If things continued to go this way, commented the Catholic priest, with three decades of experience in Latin America, within 30 or 40 years, the Roman Catholic Church would be reduced to serving a largely ornamental function. Like the Church of England, he added ruefully, while the real religious life of the vast majority of the people would be lived in Pentecostal congregations. I listened as much to the tone of the conversation as to its content. They didn't seem to be angry or worried, not even the practicing Catholics or the mainline Protestants present. They were quite simply awed. This is a religious change of the first order, the theologian said. Well, we're just about done on our whistle-stop tour. The story of this phenomenal growth could be told and retold repeatedly in different parts of the world. Here are a few pictures in Brazil. In Nigeria. In South Korea. In India. I mean, even parts of India today where there are now several local churches of 25,000, 35,000. These are pictures that I took when I was in Kerala of a church that's, that grew from two couples to 25,000 in a matter of years. In China, which is arguably the biggest gro church growth in church history. And finally, here's a picture in Nigeria of the evangelist Reinhard Bonnke preaching in 2002. And it's not just you know, large evangelistic crowds, hundreds of thousands of local churches have been planted across the nations. And the key, just as in the New Testament, the, what's the key to global mission? The key as in the New Testament has been the combination of God's word preached with power and God actually breaking in to meet people's lives and people's needs. His presence and his power through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has created these kind of centers of worship where his presence comes amongst us and the word of God is preached and the poor are served and ministered to. It's a kind of, these are the key features again and again and again and again. And it's impossible to deny that over the last century or so, the primary driver in the growth of the Christian religion globally has been the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the resultant evangelism and church planting that's taken place. Now, I'm out of time, but let me leave you 
just with two simple thoughts. First of all, you and I, we're here in the global south. This is a hotspot for church growth. You are part of an amazing story. Even though we're in a relatively small congregation scattered across the southern part of Africa, we're part of an amazing wave of God's power and God's grace that is sweeping over the, the continent of Africa, but over the global south as well right now. And then secondly, even though we're in a strange season, it's been a strange season with COVID and we're doing things by video and we've got challenges around us, economic, and there's been unrest in our own country. The fact is God is with us. God is with us. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. God has a plan and a purpose. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit into your own life. Share the good news of Jesus with others. God bless you. We'll see you soon. I trust that the Lord has used Lex this morning to freshly inspire us, to awaken us, to just being reminded that God is on the move and has been for century after century. And we, our generation, just are like a drop jumping into an already moving river. God is at work and He continues to be at work and He will continue to be at work even after we're gone. And we get to be empowered by the Spirit to be a part of that work in our generation. So I'm sure it's also raised uh, many questions for some of you around the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're not quite sure what Lex means by some of those things. Or you're not sure how you feel about the Holy Spirit. Or you don't understand it from the Bible. And so I would love to just direct you to our website. And there's under the resources section, you'll find some resources around the Holy Spirit that we've compiled into one page to make it easy. Some books that you could read. Um, some sermons that we've preached that you could listen to. Some sermons that others have preached that you could listen to. It'll also be in the link right below this YouTube video you could click there to go directly to that and then Charles will also put it in our newsletter which goes out next week Thursday and so all of those are going to the same place to just help resource you if you'd like to read and think more about the Holy Spirit and then what I would love to do is as we finish our time this morning I'd love to pray for you Maybe as you've watched that this morning, you've been stirred in your heart and you say, Lord, I want more of your Holy Spirit. I want to experience your Holy Spirit. Or maybe even, Lord, can I have the gift of tongues? I would love to be able to pray when I feel like I don't know how to pray anymore and I don't know what words to use. I would love to have a spiritual heavenly language that I can that I can express my my prayers to God. And so I would love to just pray a commissioning prayer over you and then we're going to close this morning. So Father, as we sit in our homes watching this this morning and we just feel prompted by your spirit, I want to ask you 
that you would pour out your spirit upon us in increased measure. Not just because we want the feelies, Lord, but because we want to do your work. We want to, we want to know you more. We want to draw nearer to you and experience you and walk in the power that you've promised that we will have as the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Lord, that we'd be able to witness where before we've been terrified to share our faith. That we'd be able to go into situations where we've been afraid and be equipped and empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit as we see that you've empowered generations before us. Lord, we ask for a fresh touch. We ask you for a fresh touch. Lord, I pray that over the next days and the next weeks and over the next months in people's lives, those who are coming to you this morning and saying, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I'm thirsty. I'm hungry to taste more of what you have for me. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would graciously respond in our lives and pour out your Spirit freshly on us. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. One hope, have a wonderful week. Stefan Kern is going to be sharing with us next week about their 14 years they've been missionaries in Mozambique. And he's going to be talking about some of their experiences. And it's going to be a wonderful time to be together again. So we'll see you there. God bless for the week ahead.